Well, this morning we pick back up in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And so the reading we have this morning is found in the second chapter, verses 6 through 11. We're taking our time with chapter 2. I was looking at how other people divide this, and I saw a pastor who preached all of chapter 2 in one Sunday. Um, You can certainly do that, but there's a lot here. The apostle, speaking by the Spirit of God, tells us, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word and for its cleansing, its sanctifying and nourishing effects. We pray that your spirit would descend upon us, God, that your spirit would unfold these words before our very eyes and our hearts, that we might know the things freely given to us in Christ, that we might know how to walk in a manner consistent with the gospel and in a way that glorifies you. Speak, Lord, we pray through any unclarity on my end, and God, please cause all of us to hear these words, though our spirits might be sleepy through the week or through a long night, Lord, or maybe a frustrating morning. God, we pray that your word, that indeed the powers of the age to come would break through this morning and speak to our hearts, for our edification, and for your glory. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to our series on the book of Romans. And just to get us back up to speed, if you remember after introducing the letter in uh, verses 1, 1 through 17, the apostle has begun to make his case against fallen humanity, both Jews and Greeks, in order to show that all people, without exception, are in need of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, which is received by faith alone. And he began with the unbelieving Gentile world in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And here he showed how they are without excuse before the tribunal of Almighty God since they actively suppress the knowledge that they have of him in nature. God has left, as we saw, an indelible mark upon both creation and conscience, both testifying to his reality and existence, but also testifying to our accountability to him. Then when we get to chapter 2, Paul the prosecutor sets his gaze upon the Jews, And so far, he has shown that the Jews are also inexcusable before God. We saw that in the first verse of chapter 2. And we see that the Jews, that their self-righteous judgments, that their dependence upon their own Jewish 
heritage, they are presuming upon God's kindness, only has stored up wrath for themselves. God's patience and his forbearance to them was offered so that they might turn from their self-righteous ways. But instead of doing that, they strong-armed the Lord, or they, they really, they stiff-armed the Lord, I mean. They said, no, we will not receive this grace. And so their situation becomes all the more desperate and dark and awful. And in verses 6 through 11, this morning we will learn about how God intends to judge the world on the last day. It's, just, it's as if Paul is saying, okay, you Jews think you are beyond the reach of God's judgment. You think your ethnicity will perhaps vouch for you on the last day. Let me show you what will matter on the last day. Let me show you how that final judgment will be conducted. And then you get back to me and let me know what you think. And in this context, in Romans 2, 6 through 11, we see that this judgment can go one of two ways. And so we're going to split that up and look at that um, this morning through three different points. Uh, but to begin with, we're going to look at the character and destiny of the unrighteous. So we'll start with the negative, we could say. The character and destiny of the unrighteous. Character matters. When you fill out a job application, very likely you're going to receive a request to give a character reference. When finding a spouse, of course, character matters. Those of you who are parents, of course, you raise your children with a, a desire that they grow up to be virtuous and upright people with sterling and holy and pure characters. And scripture is concerned with character as well. And concerning the last day, we can ask, what is the character profile of those whom God ultimately disapproves of? Of those who, as Psalm 1 says, will not stand in the judgment. Well, Paul gives us four character qualities here. First, they are those who are self-seeking. They are those who are driven solely by selfish ambition. Here, God is not glorified, the neighbor is not loved, but rather they are forgotten or ignored. Or if they're not ignored, then they are, we could say, instrumentalized. They're used solely for the sake of advancing one's own agendas. The highest goal isn't God, it isn't even the good in some abstract philosophical sense, but instead it is gain, material gain, gain in power, gain in prestige, gain in influence. Functionally, the self is God, creating its own values and determining what is worthwhile and what is right and what is wrong, which leads us to our second and our third character traits, which we can look at together. The unrighteous who will fall short on that last day are those who, quote, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. They do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Sometimes out in the world, or if you're watching a television show, Christianity is opposed in the name of freedom. You hear things like, I don't want to give up my freedom in order to serve God or to be controlled by the church. I want to be my own man or woman. 
But to live apart from the gracious reign of God is only to give up oneself to the tyrannical reign of sin and Satan. Better to serve and worship the God who loves you, forgives you, and never abandons you, even if obedience is hard and uncomfortable sometimes, than to serve the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But when we look here at chapter 2, we see that truth and unrighteousness are set in opposition to one another. When one lives according to truth, and here we're talking about God's truth, then the fruit of righteousness bubbles up in one's life as a result. But when one lives according to falsehood, then unrighteousness follows. Finally, Paul sums up these individuals in verse 8 by saying that they are those who do evil. So their hearts are drenched in evil, and so consequently all of their actions are drenched in evil. In fact, anything that proceeds from that heart is marked with darkness and with corruption and with evil. Selfish, disobedient, and evil, these are the marks of the unrighteous. So aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Uh, but what about the destiny of these individuals? The Holy Bible says that God will render to each one according to his works. In other words, he will give to each as a reward um, their due, exactly what they have earned. And the wages for this lifestyle of unrepentant sin, according to the word of God, is wrath and fury from God. So we're talking about hell here. And when we look at the whole of Scripture, we discover that the punishment of hell is the just and righteous response of God to the sin of those without mediator, resulting in everlasting conscious torment. This is the punishment, we could say, from God's side. But Paul also shares what the experience of these ones will be in verse 9, that there will be tribulation and distress for them at this judgment and for all eternity. So both in body and in soul, these individuals will suffer tribulation and distress forever and ever and ever. This is not a pretty picture. It's actually quite grim. But this is God's word. And so we know that it is given to us for our saving health and for our upbuilding. So we can ask how can we apply this section to our lives? How shall we respond? Well, first, consider the wickedness of sin. Consider the danger of sin. Consider its incompatibility with who we are as the children of light. If sin will separate, if sin will separate the reprobate from the Savior and from heaven for all eternity, what makes us think we should have anything to do with it. Put to death then any secret covenant you may have with some special sin. Cast it off far from you. Lop off the limb that leads you into sin and give glory to God by making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. But second, let these words be an occasion for all of us to exercise compassion towards the lost. Were we not also once those who, are, who were without hope and without God in the world? So pray for the lost. 
Pray for loved ones who are still lost. Never give up doing that. Support or continue to support ministries that make an effort to bring light to those in darkness and let the world know through word and deed that there is a God, that he exists, and that he has provided a savior for the world, that all who turn to him in faith can be saved and indeed will be saved. Well, so much for the character and destiny of the unrighteous. We'll take a turn now and look at the character and destiny of the righteous. And these next two points really belong to one another. And part of the reason for that is that we really want to be careful when we, under, uh, when we interpret and read the apostle here. But instead of trying to say everything I want to say in the next two points in a single sentence, let's just follow the apostle's argument very closely. So God, as we're learning, does not show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism, neither to the Jew nor to the Greek or to the Gentile. And this is because he exercises the strictest justice in judging, judging a person by his or her works. So then we can ask, who are those to whom God ultimately gives the judgment or the verdict of approval? Well, the apostle tells us, they are those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And then he says that they are those who do good. This individual goes through life with an inflexible perseverance. Their wills are determined to do that which is good, to follow God in heart, mind, soul, and strength with all of their faculties. And they do this even faced with temptation, trial, and persecution. The fiery darts of Satan ricochet off of the armor of God, fitted so closely to the body and soul of this individual. This individual has their mind set on things above, with their heart possessed and filled with longings and hopes for heavenly glory, for honor and immortality in the kingdom of God. And God is a just God. Just as he will repay damnation for evil, so too he will repay everlasting blessedness for good. Notice, to this individual, God will give, according to verse 7, eternal life. And in verse 10, he will give glory and honor and peace. Now, is that not all of our aspirations? To have eternal union and communion with our Creator in the age to come and to enjoy a heavenly and holy glory. The splendor of heavenly glory. In chapter 5, verse 2, the apostle says that Christians rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we await that superlative honor, not from our peers, not from those who are influential in this world, but we await that everlasting final honor God bestows upon those who are inheritors of the new creation. And we await that final transfiguration from corruptibility to incorruptibility. And finally, we await that end time peace where all sin and death and sadness will be no more for God will be with us in a consummate, intimate, and perfect way. This is the reward of righteousness. Well, 
you're following along closely, all of this kind of creates some questions, doesn't it? Is the apostle saying that if one conforms one's life to righteousness, to righteous deeds, to righteous desires, to righteous dispositions, that God will give him or her eternal life as a result? I mean, that seems, seems to be what the text says. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So we can ask, is Paul teaching salvation by works? This is why we needed these two last points together. And so to, to find the answer to that, we're going to move to our final point where we try to discover the identity of the righteous. Who are these righteous ones that the apostle is speaking about? In Romans 2, these righteous ones whom God repays their righteous works with an eternal reward. Well, if you can imagine, this has been a matter of some controversy in church history. Roman Catholics, they see this passage as justifying the teaching that our works can somehow commend us to God in a saving way, that we can merit his approval in some way. Protestants, those who believe that God justifies sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, even amongst Protestants, there's difference with respect to this passage. A very popular line of interpretation says that what Paul is talking about here are spirit-filled Christians who are keeping the law by God's grace. While works aren't meritorious, they are necessary for Christians, especially for rewards and that's what Paul is addressing here. R.C. Sproul held this view. I love R.C. Sproul, so I'm not trying to challenge his ministry or anything like that. Um, but yeah, good Bible-believing Christians have come down uh, to this position. So what are we to make of this? Well, let's conclude with some remarks in this direction. To begin with, the Roman Catholic interpretation is in error. Because we know that the scripture teaches that the absolutely free grace of God in our salvation is exactly that. It is an absolutely free grace and that our works simply do not factor into our acceptance with God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But maybe we get to the thornier question. Is Paul describing spirit-filled Christians here? <clears throat> Respectfully, no. Paul is not addressing the moral life of the Christian on his or her way to the new creation. Now, you know, we, of course, affirm with the New Testament that the moral life, the ethical life of Christians, of you and me, is going to look different from that of the rest of the world. And we also affirm that the Bible talks about rewards, you know, which is different from salvation. But we want to see, you know, what is Paul talking about here? This is an instance where understanding the larger context of the letter and of Paul's argument is of supreme importance. In chapters 1, verses 18 through 3, verse 20, the apostle is preaching the law. He is not preaching the gospel. After arguing against the Jews, as he's kind of making some summary statements, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
We've already charged. So what have we been doing? We have been saying that everybody, Jew and Greek, are under sin. In other words, he's showing everyone's need for Jesus. And he's announcing what the law requires, not what fallen humanity can do, and certainly not what God has done for us through Christ in the gospel. That doesn't come till chapter 3, verse 21. So to say that Paul is talking about how Christians get to heaven here, it would have confused the legalistic Jew who was already trying to find his acceptance with God through works of the law. But Paul's whole point up to this point has been that you cannot be saved through the works of the law. And when you just give a simple reading of 118 to 3.20, something is conspicuously absent, and that is the word grace, the word faith, and the word gospel. Now, I love this. Jesus did the same thing. We have this same teaching in narrative form in two places, but we'll look at Luke chapter 10 when he is speaking to the lawyer. in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, 25. There's a, a parallel in Matthew 19, too, with the rich young ruler. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So maybe you expect Jesus to say, quote John three sixteen, right? What does he say? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. The Lord Jesus knew the Old Testament, of course, and this statement is, is mirrored in Leviticus 18.5 where we hear Moses say, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. If a person does them, he shall live by them. The way to the tree of life and to the paradise of God has always been through obedience. It has been through righteousness. And if we can offer that kind of obedience, then we can receive that kind of reward, namely of eternal life. But what's the problem? None of us here can offer that kind of obedience to God. Even on our best days, we still fall short. If God were to judge us according to our works, if he were to judge us according to the severity of the law, then we would be lost. Then to us, would belong God's wrath and fury, and all we would have to look forward to and anticipate in the age to come is tribulation and distress bodily and in soul. But God intervenes for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, who kept God's law throughout the course of his life, and the judge of all the earth, this judge who judges impartially, is satisfied with Christ's work on our behalf so that we are judged not according to our works, but according to Christ's perfect works. Then, as a result, as a gift of grace, not because of our works, we receive the certain promise of glory and of honor 
and of immortality and of peace in the age to come. And brothers and sisters, we can have even the beginnings of that peace here today. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we would have eternal life, then we must receive the Lord Jesus, His obedience and His obedience alone is our hope and our righteousness. Take hold of it today. Don't let another moment pass without receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification. That is with free acceptance with God. Close this morning with two verses, Isaiah 55, 1 and Revelation 22, 17. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your law, which is a sledgehammer to our pride. And we thank you for the gospel, which is a healing balm for our illnesses and for our maladies. Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for the obedience of Jesus. It truly is our only hope. Please, God, cure any anxieties or doubts we may have concerning our standing with you. Impress upon our hearts that what matters ultimately is the obedience of your Son. Yes, you have called us to a way of life, but that our standing with you is rooted and grounded in Christ alone. May that be our heart's song throughout the rest of this year and indeed through 2024 and for all eternity. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your scripture, which you have given to us that we might know your son more. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.